0: I invite you now to grab a Bible and to open it to the Gospel of Matthew in the 26th chapter. If you're using one of the Bibles that's provided for you, you'll find it on page 831, Matthew chapter 26. We're going to look at the first several verses together. And as you're turning there, we're starting a new series today entitled The Final Scenes How Jesus Took our place. And for the next several weeks, we're going to be doing what we actually see happening in the Gospels themselves. We're going to be zooming in on the, the very last moments of Jesus's life. Uh, the Gospels do this in such a way that some scholars have described the, uh, the Gospels in this way. It is a passion narrative with a long introduction. Uh, The phrase passion is referring to the last moments of Jesus' life, and so the movie The Passion of Jesus Christ. It is focusing on the moments in which he offered up himself as a sacrifice and then rose again victorious over death and sin. That if you were to take the Gospels as a homework assignment and, and look through all the chapters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see that about 33 years is covered but the most amount of time and the most amount of attention is given to the last seven days. So in in everything that transpired in Jesus' life, there is an amazing amount of attention and focus that's given to the final scenes, the last moments. It's not that his birth isn't important or his life isn't important or his teaching isn't important, but we understand all of that his birth and his life and his teaching most fully when we see it in connection to his death and resurrection, that it has to all go together. And so sometimes like a photographer will have a a variety of things in the background, but then we'll take the lens and focus on one thing. That's often what the, the gospel writers are doing for us. They focus us in and say, pay attention here, don't miss this. This is where you need to know exactly what's happening and it does it, with the end of Jesus's life. And so we're gonna do that. We're gonna let Matthew guide us and so we'll walk through his gospel but focus in and zoom in our attention and our eyes on the last moments of Jesus's life here on earth. We're gonna begin in verse one of chapter 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days, The Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people." Now, when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor, but Jesus Aware of this said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought, An opportunity to betray him. That'll conclude our reading for this morning. Here we're focusing on the preparation that is taking place in these final moments. There's preparation actually going on at a variety of levels. Jesus himself is preparing the disciples for what's about to happen, the chief priests and the leaders are preparing for how to get a hold of Jesus. A woman is preparing Jesus for burial, and Judas is preparing to betray him. There's a lot that's happening, and for all different kinds of reasons, and so we're just going to walk through it in the order that it's given. But Jesus, that he's doing some preparation, the preparation of Jesus. Our passage opens, and it says, when he had finished all of these sayings, he said to his disciples... For us, to understand what it is he's about to say, it's helpful to know what he had just finished saying. If you have a Bible open that has uh, the words of Jesus in red letters, you'll see that there's actually a lot that Jesus has just got done saying. But I'm just gonna ask you to look at verse 31 of chapter 25. This is part of what Jesus had just finished saying. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all of the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. I should stop there. It's pretty profound. The son of man is going to come in glory, sitting on a throne, and all of the nations of the world are going to be gathered before him. That's a profound statement of authority. This is what he's just been teaching them, that he himself, who is the Son of Man, at some point in the future, will have everybody come and stand before him and, and be judged by him. And, and then the details of the rest of that chapter describe how and whom he will judge. But, but it's getting to the heart of this question, which every one of us has to answer. Before we even understand fully what happened to Jesus, we have to know who is Jesus. Who is he? Who are we talking about? And so that if somebody were just to ask you that question and say, maybe you've heard of him, who do you think that he is? And you'd say, well, Jesus was somebody who lived a long, long time ago and he was a really good teacher. Maybe you'll even give him a little bit more than that and you'll say, you know what, it seems like he was not just a good teacher but that he was able to do some things that other people couldn't do, kind of like a miracle worker, a healer. But there was something special to him more than just his teaching. Well, what Jesus himself claimed here is that he was even more Than a teacher, and even more than a healer, he says that he is the one before whom all the nations will one day be gathered. And so he's not claiming just to be a special human being that's maybe a little bit different than you and I. He's saying he's so different, so unique, that he's going to be the one that you and I, as human beings, stand before one day. And that he is going to make a judgment about your life and about my life, about your soul and about my soul. And anybody sitting around said, well, if that's what you're claiming to be able to do, only God does that. God's the one before whom everybody will be gathered. God's the one who separates the sheep from the goats. God's the one who makes a judgment about who goes where. God's the one who can see past our words and past our actions and into our souls and into our motivations and make a judgment about us. Are you, are you, are you, 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 your God? Is that what you're saying about yourself? And in no uncertain terms, there's no better way he could make the claim <clears throat> than to say that he is going to be the one who rules over everything. And so that as we continue on, on the, the final scenes and what happens, this is what he wants them to keep in mind. Before the betrayal, before the supper, before anything else, he makes this absolutely profound and unique claim. Claim. And this is one of the reasons why we encourage you, if you're willing, to have a Bible open in front of you when we're teaching you, because it could almost sound like we're making this up. <laughs> now he didn't really say that. He, who, who says that? If somebody were to walk past you on the street today, or if you go out shopping this afternoon and they were to say this about themselves, you'd recommend them to a psychiatric ward. If somebody came up to you that you could see and said, hey, when it's all said and done, Everybody's going to stand in front of me. I'm the judge of the world. So, what are you, nuts? You'd call for help. And so, here's Jesus making these claims about himself that are profound and they're amazing. So, that when we as Christians gather together and we are asked the question, Who is Jesus? we believe he is who he said he is, that he is the Son of Man before whom all the nations will be gathered. He is not someone that we just remember what he did back 2,000 years ago, but he is somebody before whom we believe we will stand one day and give an account for our lives. And that's who he's claiming to be, that he is the one who rules and reigns over all. Now, when he finished that, look at verse 2 of chapter 26. <clears throat> He says, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Now you have to pause. Wait a minute. You just said you're the Son of Man before whom everybody's going to stand, and you're the judge. So why is the Son of Man going to be delivered up to be crucified? You just said you have all the power in the world to do whatever you want. So why are you going to get arrested? You just said you could make anything happen that you wanted to make happen, but just a couple hours from now, somebody's going to take you and they're going to do something to you? that you could stop, that you could prevent, that you could veto and say, nope, that's not the way it's going to happen. And he's saying, yeah. All the power that I'm claiming I have, all the power that I can show you that I have, I'm not going to use any of that power when people come to arrest me. So say, what? You're going to let somebody whom you've created, somebody who you will one day judge, come and and do this to you? And if we can really get into the details of what Jesus is saying, we can empathize more with the disciples who often come across as very confused and not actually getting what's going on. Because these are hard things to understand. Why would he let them do this? And so that's the question. Why will Jesus be crucified? Well, as the story unfolds, we get the answer more. But right away, we can already eliminate some answers that don't work. Jesus is not going to be crucified because other people are stronger than him. That isn't the answer. And Jesus is not going to be crucified because they're going to trick him. Jesus, and this is the first point on the handout, Jesus was not surprised by his death. Jesus was in no way surprised by his death. He told his disciples it was coming. He knew it was coming. If he wanted to get out, he had time to get out. But instead, he stays, and he tells everybody what's about to happen. So why is Jesus crucified? Well, it's not because he's tricked. It's not because he's surprised. It's not because he's weak. And therefore, it's not even because other people just don't like him or hate him. And so there has to be some answer to this question of why he would let this happen other than those things. And we have to allow the rest of the story to unfold for us to really get behind that. But this is how Jesus is preparing himself and his disciples He's preparing them by explaining exactly who he is, exactly what's going to happen, so that they wouldn't be surprised when it takes place. So that they would know that he is, in fact, who he claimed to be, that he is God in the flesh. And what he is doing, they are yet to discover the full ramifications of but then from the preparation of Jesus, there's the preparation of the religious leaders. Look at them in verse 3. It says, Then the chief priests and the elders and the, of the people gathered together in the place of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And so now if you're unfamiliar with what exactly is going on, it's appropriate to say, why did they hate him? It seems clear about their motives and their intentions. They didn't want to just silence him. They didn't want to just expel him from the city. Their their intentions are clear. They wanted to arrest him so that they could kill him. They were thirsty for punishment on him. They didn't like what he was saying. They thought his claims about being the judge over the world, about his claims to be able to forgive sin, were blasphemy, offensive language about God, which in their day and age carried with it the punishment of death. And so that if Jesus is walking around and he is misleading everybody about who God is and what God is up to in the world, then in their mindset, that sin is a crime that's deserving of death. But if, you, if you're willing to go backwards a little bit and read the back part of the story, you, you, you'll find out that this isn't where they started. They didn't start with this kind of hatred or this kind of desire for violence. They did come to him often and they asked him questions. Questions? He he was the new guy on scene and people were following him and so they wanted to know what he was teaching and what he was about and so they would ask him this question and that question. Why do you do this and why do you do that? But slowly over time, as they didn't like the answers that they were getting, as they saw that people actually preferred him to them, their, their sort of just curiosity turned to indifference, turned to coldness, and then turned to hatred where they couldn't stand him anymore and they didn't want him to be around and they didn't want anybody else to enjoy him as well. And in their progression, we see what the Bible always describes about sin is that it always takes us farther than we want to go. When we start by just not caring about someone, not caring about a certain situation, We can find that over time, if we don't pay attention to that and ask ourselves, well, what's in us that doesn't care? Why is it that we we have no concern over this, that eventually that, that just indifference turns to something deeper and darker? But there is always a progression that our rebellion, our disobedience wants to take us, and so though where we're beginning this morning, the the chief priests and the elders are about as angry as they can be, don't think to yourself that that's where they started. That from the beginning, this was their attitude towards Jesus. It wasn't. It wasn't their attitude in the beginning, but it is where their attitude took them because it was unchecked by love. It was unchecked by reason. It was unchecked by accountability from other people. Jesus, instead of becoming this potential influence, this, this great asset to, to their own leadership, became, in their own minds, competition. And so they wanted nothing to do with him. He was the guy that had to get out of the way, and so they start preparing. They start plotting, and they start thinking, what's the best way to do this? But no longer are they having the discussion about what to do. It's just a matter of how. But their mind is set. They want him gone. They don't care what more answers he can give. They don't care what more he has to say. They just want to get rid of him. And now we see this preparation for burial. Jesus is reclining at a meal in a town called Bethany in the house of a man named Simon. And it says that while he's reclined, a woman in verse seven comes up to him with an alabaster flask, of very expensive ointment. She breaks the flask and pours the oil on him. Apparently this was so expensive that others around get angry at her saying, why would you waste this? You just had something so valuable in your hands and you could have done something better with it. You could have sold it for a large sum of money. You could have given it to the poor. All kinds of things that you could have done with it. But Jesus stops them and says, why are you guys giving her a hard time? They're still not understanding what's about to take place and therefore they don't understand the significance of what she's doing. And so he's trying to make it clear to them in the the simplest of terms. Look, she's actually doing a beautiful thing. You're always going to have the poor with you. You're not always going to have me. Here's somebody who's trying to say goodbye and they just don't get it. I'm leaving. We only have a little bit more time together. And you're still getting into arguments over non essentials instead of focusing on me and what is about to take place. And in case they didn't understand by what he meant, you will not always have me, he adds, in pouring this ointment, verse 12, she has done it to prepare me for burial. And so here again, Jesus knows exactly what's coming. He's not in any way surprised. He's not in any way thrown off guard. He knows the fate that now awaits him. And then in verse 13, he says, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And here Jesus is beginning to answer the question for whom will he die? Okay? He, he said that he was God. He said that he was going to die. We see that other people hate him enough to kill him. And now he's starting to unpack for them for, for whom he's going to do this. Why is he going to do this? And he gets to it when he says about this woman in verse 13, Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, What is about to happen to him is gospel, which you could translate as well, good news for the whole world. This bad news about what's going to happen to me, about me saying goodbye, about me being buried, that bad news of what's going to happen to me is going to be good news for everybody. This isn't just some local event that only a couple of people are going to know about, or he's only doing it for one friend of his. Just like he made clear that he's going to be the person who's going to stand as a judge over the whole world, he's now making clear to them that what he's about to do is for the benefit of the whole world. Not just one person, not just three people, not just his good buddies. But just as he had said that he would one day be a judge before whom all the nations of the world would be gathered, what he is doing and what this lady is preparing him for has implications for that whole world. So that that whole world, who's going to one day meet him in judgment, will have some reason to not fear because of what he is about to do for them. And so here are the disciples still confused about what's going on, still finding it hard to accept. And here's this woman who doesn't desire it to happen any more than the disciples, but she accepts him at his word. If he says he's about to die, then she's going to prepare him for burial. She's not going to fight his word. She's not going to fight what's about to happen. She's going to believe him and she's going to take him at his word. If we've trusted him all the way up until now, Why would we stop trusting him? If he's told us the truth all the way up until now, why would he start lying to us? And so she trusts him. She believes him. She accepts what's about to happen. And so she, in this profound act, takes a great loss of her own in this ointment and pours it out in such a way that it is now used on him and cannot be given or used for the benefit of anyone or anything else. And so she's making this preparation of him. And then the story continues in verse 14. Then one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? I think Matthew is doing something here and putting these stories together. There's Jesus preparing preparing the disciples for what's about to happen, and then there's the chief priest preparing to kill him. There's this lady who is pouring out this oil on him, preparing him for burial, and then Judas, still unconvinced, unmoved, just begins to accelerate his own plans. One of Jesus' closest followers, one of his very own disciples, one of the 12 who just spent years following him sets his mind on betraying him and goes up to these people who are filled with anger and animosity and hatred towards his master and he says, how much money will you give me? What are you willing to give me if I offer him to you? And it's so sad because all that Jesus has just said is, you don't need to, I'm willingly doing this. I'm not tricked by this. I'm not surprised by this. I know what they're planning and I'm not going to stop it. And here Judas, not necessary for the plan to unfold, is moved in such a way that he wants to betray him. Now, it doesn't tell us why he wants to. It's said of the, the Pharisees and the, or the chief priests and the elders, it says they wanted to arrest him so that they could kill him. It says that Judas wanted to betray him, but it doesn't say why. And when his story continues, it's not hard to imagine that he didn't want that to happen because it's not very long that he becomes overwhelmed by what happens to Jesus, that he takes his own life. And so he's willing to betray him. We don't know why, but then it makes us ask the question, well, if If what Jesus is doing has implications for the whole world and it's good news for everybody, but then right after we find that out, we see somebody who's unwilling to go along with it, then we ask the question, well, who will miss out on the good news? Though there is good news for everybody, though there is something worth telling everybody, somebody's going to miss out on it. Somebody's going to not embrace it. Somebody's going to not choose it. And we have this example in Judas. It's not because Judas isn't somebody for whom Jesus will die. It's because even hearing that and knowing that, Judas says, I want nothing to do with that. So Jesus has just made clear that what he's going to do is good news for the whole world. But it's not a guaranteed, it's not an automatic. It is something that he opens up to the world as a way back to the Father. But if our hearts are set like Judas's is on rejecting him, on saying, well, we don't need it, thanks for being willing to offer that to me, but I don't want it then all the benefits, all the joy, and all that comes with what Jesus is about to do, we actually miss out on. And that's one of the profound realities of the story. And Jesus had said that to them. When he stands before everybody as the judge of the whole world, there will be a separation because not everybody will follow him not everybody will accept the good news not everybody will believe and so then in reading it it's not hard to put ourselves into it and say well where are we are we like the disciples that are still confused and not really sure what this all means are we like the the, the chief elders and the leaders that are just kind of indifferent towards it and cold and maybe on a path towards flat-out rejection? Or are we like this humble woman who comes and in no way desiring anything bad to come to Jesus, but fully trusting and accepting that he knows what he's doing? We don't fight it. We don't resist it. Or are we like the cold-hearted Judas, who having heard it all up close and personal, say, you know what, maybe they're fine with this, maybe they want to accept this, but I want nothing to do with it. This is is the beginning of these final moments of Jesus' life. He makes clear that the judge of the world is going to be judged for the world. The judge of the world, the Son of Man, before whom all the nations of the earth will be gathered, is just in the next few moments, in the next few hours, he is about to be judged for the world. All the power that is his, he's going to not use. And he's going to allow himself to be arrested, to be crucified, to be delivered up. And something in that is going to have implications and good news for the whole world. And so he, knowing that, he was prepared to die. And that's what we get in every one of the gospels that we look at. He was prepared to die. And the challenge for us is, are we? He knew what was coming. He knew why it was coming. He's getting everybody around him that he can ready for it. And while We ourselves aren't following a similar path like him in terms of the significance of what his death would mean. We're all human beings who know beyond a shadow of a doubt that death awaits us. And and that's what we can say about each other. Whether we know each other or not, you and I can just look at one another and say about each other, there's going to be a day when you will die there's going to be a day when I will die. Am I prepared for that? Have I given thought to what happens after that, before whom I will stand and give an account? And the best way to prepare for that is to know and to hear that the one before whom I will stand, the one before whom I will give an account, is the one who came And the one who was judged for me. And and that's what we understand is going on in this. That Jesus is not just letting something happen to him. He's doing it as as a substitute for you and for me. That he experiences the consequence and the pain and the suffering. So that he then holds out to you and me the offer of peace that you could say about yourself, I am prepared to die. A song that I used to love singing at camps growing up, was one of the verses was, you're not ready to live until you're ready to die. Until you've settled that question, you're not ready to live in the kind of freedom and the fullness that God desires for you. Because until you settle that question, it never goes away. It always lingers there in the back of your mind. Even if it's all that you're trying to do is to ignore it, you know how much effort you have to spend trying to push it away so that you don't think about it? And Jesus is saying, let me offer you an alternative. You can embrace it and accept it and know that I've provided a way for you to not have to fear it. And then in no longer fearing it, live in the freedom and the joy that I offer to you. That's how Jesus prepared his disciples, those who were willing to listen. And as we look back, the same challenges come to us. Are we prepared to accept and embrace who he is and what he has done for you and for me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we had to reflect on your life. And Father, we pray that you would save us from just a cold heart, an indifferent mind, that thinks uh, this isn't relevant to us, this isn't important for me now, this is all just something long, long ago. Father, help us to realize that what you did and that what you offered is meant to be good news to us, something that we celebrate, something that we sing about, because it provides hope for all of us. So we pray That you would make your word come alive to us. That we would allow it to affect us, to affect our decisions, affect our attitude, and and, and most importantly, affect the way that we respond to you. Father, we long to see lives here, men and women respond with a kind of humble acceptance that the woman Mary responded to you. And then, Father, most of all, we just thank you that though you had all the power and all the opportunity to avoid the pain and avoid the cross. You willingly went to it for us. And so we lift up your name and we ascribe all glory and honor to you. Amen.